Welcome to Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. I'm Kent Lampert. Each week, we'll bring you a sampling of some of the best Catholic podcasts being prepared and shared out there on the internet. Every year, we find ourselves inundated with awards shows. The Emmys for TV, the Oscars for motion pictures, the Tonys for Broadway, and the Grammys for the recorded music industry, among others. This year, a particular performance on the Grammy Awards definitely drew the attention and the ire of Catholic critics. An artist, and I use that term rather loosely, and his entourage gave a performance that looked like an homage to satanic ritual. Our first offering on this week's sampler takes a hard look at this performance through the eyes of a Catholic teacher. From the Catholic Teacher Podcast, this is Jonathan Doyle with an episode entitled The Grammy Awards, Satanism, and the Catholic Teacher. Well, hey everybody, Jonathan Doyle with you once again. Welcome to the Catholic Teacher Daily Podcast. It wasn't hard to choose the title for this podcast, really, was it? We try and do it every day. At least that's the intent. And this year, 2023, we are going to be very committed to that process. Why? Because there are so many awesome Catholic teachers just like you who keep falling into the very understandable trap of thinking that um, you're a bit alone, that nobody sees what you do, that you're not sure if it's all worth it because it's challenging, there's fatigue, there's burnout, there's so many things happening in the modern teaching profession itself, let alone the many challenges within Catholic education. But the good news today, my friend, is you are not alone. Listening with you today on this podcast are Catholic teachers just like you all around the world who love their Catholic faith. They love the magisterium of the church. They love the witness of the great men and women, the saints and martyrs down through the ages. They love the holy sacraments. You're not alone, my friend. You're not alone. There's lots of people like you and me out there who are just really keen to grow in faith and commitment to Christ and to help young people do the same. Now, did I do the housekeeping? Please make sure you've subscribed. Hit that subscribe button and there will be a bunch of links under here. If you're on the podcast app, you should see a bunch of links to take you through to go and grab a free access pass to the Going Deeper Catholic Teacher Formation Program. It's an amazing program. I think we give you 10 free weeks of weekly video from me and from Karen uh, about Catholic education. So go check that out. But at the very least, please make sure you're subscribed. And I would love if you could share this on your social media, share this podcast with other great Catholic teachers. All right, friends, today I'm going out on a limb. I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to get topical. I'm going to get relevant. (laughs) Some of you go, well, what does that mean? Does that mean the rest of the time you're irrelevant? No. I want to talk about the Grammys. Uh, The Grammy Awards were on two nights ago. And, uh, you know, we try not to date the podcast, but many of you would have seen it. And if you're listening to this in the future, um, please don't go and look it up. But it's the... It's the pivotal moment, of course, where the, uh, I don't know, what do you call him? Do you call him an artist, a musician? Because I'm not sure those things are actually happening. But uh, Sam Smith went out there and did this song called Unholy. It tells you about all you need to know. Uh, And the central motif, the artistic intent, was uh, just utterly radically satanic. Uh, If you saw it, I, I, you know, I don't watch free-to-air TV ever. But uh, I jumped on YouTube just to catch a sense of it, and I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) Whatever pretense at subtlety Hollywood still had has gone screaming out the window and was last seen 
heading west into the sunset, friends, because it was like the most obliquely, blatantly satanic presentation. And uh, and interestingly, then I went and made the double mistake of uh, looking up the song lyrics. And the song lyrics are, again, lacking in all originality. They're basically, from what I could tell, it's kind of, it's an attack on family and marriage, which you have to understand is Satan's master play over the last kind of 150 years. Uh, it's kind of the reason why Karen and I did our second masters at the uh, John Paul II Pontifical Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family, because I think it was was it Pius the something um, the Fatima secrets. There was the sense that there was going to be the last great battle was the battle against marriage and family. So the lyrics of that song were very much like you know the the father is off doing terrible things behind everyone's back, and and um, you know it's no coincidence that that you know that is the focus you know of all the things they could sing about they could sing about drug use or all sorts of other things and i'm sure they do that too but um pay attention when you notice that the relentless focus is on marriage family and human sexuality right um that's how the game is being played at the moment now you know i i was thinking before you know, for many years, Hollywood was very subtle, right? Like the whole entertainment industry was very subtle. And it's interesting to to have some understanding of how that engine works. In my in my master, second master's program, I really looked at, you know, the kind of foundational philosophical engine that underpins at least culture in the developed world. So I try to teach people in seminars that, you know, I used to say that uh, guns don't kill people, ideas do. You see... You know, things like war and conflict and all sorts of other negative pan-social experiences are always the result of some kind of underlying philosophy or thesis of reality, right? So people just don't tend to wake up one day and go, oh, let's form an army and let's go and kill all these people in another country for no reason. We always tend to have some kind of underpinning belief about the structure of reality. Now, hang in there with me if you're thinking, Jonathan, where are you going? You've wandered, you're flying off the reservation here. No, stay with me because I'm going to land this plane. It's simply... The big thing I learned in that master's program was that if you look at the impact of someone like Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, who sadly most people only know from the inaccurate quote, whatever does not kill me makes me stronger. Often that's the one people quote, but I often think that's ridiculous. You know, you can drink poison, it may not kill you, but it sure as heck ain't going to make you stronger. But uh, Nietzsche's philosophy, so, you know, Nietzsche was kind of, you know, famously said, you know, God is dead and we have killed him. But I used to tell the joke when I was an undergrad at university, um, I used to study on this desk in a library and somebody had written in graffiti, true story, it was this graffiti and it said, God is dead, Nietzsche. So you could tell some, you know, some undergrad had written that thinking that they were being really edgy. And uh, the next thing was uh, someone had come along underneath it and written, God is, uh, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> now, I used to say to audiences, we know one of those statements is true, right? That we could debate the death of God, but there's no debate about the death of Nietzsche, right? So what I want to tell you is that Nietzsche's philosophies, such as the transvaluation of all values, going beyond good and evil, a whole bunch of stuff. Now, it was enormously influential. Strangely, it wasn't particularly influential in his own lifetime. He died of uh, of syphilis uh, after traveling through various European brothels. Um, but his impact was utterly extraordinary. Now, so here's the point. Um, his ideas became very de rigueur, very popular in uh, European universities around the turn of the 20th century. 
the European intellectual class leading from around, you know, from 1900 up towards, you know, through the 1920s was heavily, heavily Nietzschean. Now, when the Nazis came to power and then finally, when it was obvious that they were going to have significant plans for Europe, a large, large percentage of connected, you know, relatively wealthy European intellectuals left Europe, fled, fleeing Europe, and ended up on the west coast of the United States. And they ended up, many of them, getting tenured positions in American universities. So my point here is that you can track the impact and influence of Nietzschean ideas of nihilism, the death of God, um, going beyond concepts of human morality, good and evil, then they shaped American universities and they had powerful impacts upon the entertainment industry, you know, definitely in the 1920s and 30s and then on through, of course, into the 50s and beyond. So what I'm getting at here is that this kind of, when you get Sam Smith at the Grammys, it's not an isolated incident. It's part of a process that's been going on for a very long time. And it's a process of, I would say, is diabolical, of course, from the Greek, Greek diabolene, which means to rip apart, to tear apart the, you know, the synthesis, the, the synthesis of faith and body and union and human life and truth and beauty and goodness, to rip it apart, to, to diabolically destroy it. And, and based and related to that, of course, is I always teach audiences of teachers that always remember that Satan cannot create, all right? He cannot create. He can only mutate. It's a really important distinction. The power of creation, especially creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing, belongs to God alone. One of the beautiful things about uh, being made in the Imago Dei, each of us being made in the image of God, is we are in Latin participes creatoris, which means co-creators, participators in God's creative act in cosmological history, which means what? Which means that we literally cooperate with God in the creative act. But Satan cannot create. Isn't that a fascinating distinction? He can only mutate. So he doesn't create a better or more appealing necessarily form of human sexual union or, or family union. He mutates the existing one. And also remember that with Satan, the point of his activity is not to win any kind of final battle. Always make that point. He's not trying to win any kind of final battle. He knows that is not possible, right? He understands that and biblical history all the way through to Revelation, the triumph of the Lamb, the feast of the Lamb shows that the, the enemy will be, or has been, defeated uh, in, in temporal time, but will be f defeated in cosmological time. So what all Satan can do between now and the final battle is simply to steal as many souls as possible from the hands of the loving Father, right? Do you understand that? So that's the game. All of the perversion, all of the you know distraction, and all of the hopelessness and nihilism that underpins culture is driven towards taking each individual soul away from God, collapsing souls into despair or depravity or moral compromise or sin so that they're separated in heart or body or mind from the Creator God. So all of this, my friends, 10 minutes and 8 seconds to get to this point, is to simply say, what is our role in this? And why am I talking about Sam Smith? Well, I'm talking about it because so many of your students probably saw some of it, the good news is that mainstream media is kind of being cannibalized, that there's so many different media access points now, different formats of media that, you know, the big networks, the big platforms don't tend to have as much reach as they once did. But let's agree that many of our students would have seen uh, the Sam Smith at the Grammys or they would have seen something like it before. They're very familiar with it. 
So I, I want you to be aware of this milieu, of this environment that they're that our young people are swimming in. And so what do we do? Well, I come back to the simple proposition that if you want to win a culture war, you don't win it necessarily by beating your enemies or forcing people to do or believe something. How you win a culture war is simply by telling a better story. That's how you win a culture war. So Sam Smith gets up there and says, hey, the path to happiness is uh, sexual depravity and, uh, and demonic actualization and normalizing Satanism. And if you follow this path, you'll be famous, happy, exhilarated. So what we have to do is not really waste any time going, you know, and you can see it, right? You see the kind of the knee-jerk uh, reaction, you know, which has been there for many years, understandably, right, which is... You know, I guess it's the old moral majority response, right? Which was, you know, this is horrible, this is terrible, we need to ban this, this shouldn't be on TV. It's not going to happen, right? Because if you take it off TV, it's just going to manifest somewhere else. Uh, I'm not saying there should be no controls over what's shown in, in, in the wide public channels, but you get my point, right? Like, you know, banning books doesn't tend to basically have an enormous amount of effect long term. What does have good effect is telling a better story. What does have good effect is telling a better story. Telling a more beautiful story, a Catholic story, is a story about truth, about beauty, and about goodness. See, why does a Mother Teresa still resonate with people? Why do people look at her lives? You know, some people would, you know, maybe would pick someone like a Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King, who, of course, some listeners would know also had their own backstories and compromises too. But we point to these people and we say, oh, there's something you know, that we want to emulate here. There's something good here. It's a moral good. We gravitate towards it. It's attractive to us or something that's profoundly beautiful. So I think that the role of a Catholic teacher is, you, do you understand, my good friend, that you are in a battle? This is a moment-to-moment, door-to-door, you know, hand-to-hand combat against a diabolical enemy. That's what's actually happening in Catholic education. What do you think is Satan's plan for each student? What do you think his plan is? It's not for their flourishing. It's not that they would encounter more truth, beauty, and goodness. It's not that they would know that they are made perfectly in the image of a perfect loving father. He doesn't want them to know that. He wants them distracted, perverted, confused. So your classroom in many ways becomes a battleground. How so? Well, it's you can do so much. The music that you might play, the the films that you might select to watch and to discuss, the literature and books you discuss. You could do any number of things. I used to, when I was teaching full time, I used to, you know, start lessons with a famous quote from a brilliant man or woman of history, and just you know, three or four minutes unpack the meaning of that quote, or a piece of poetry, or some music in the background, or times of stillness and silence in the chapel. Now, every time you do these, you will not notice a result. Your students will rarely come up to you and say, "Wow, you know, Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones, that was that was the best lesson ever. I felt I felt a profound sense." of the sublime transcendentals transforming my inner person more and more into the image of Christ as I renew my mind. They're not going to be saying that, right? But we, we fight anyway. We fight anyway because all the great battles require commitment, time, heroism, sacrifice. And that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. So my friend, get back in there. Know your identity. You're not there by accident. You're not there by accident. You've been placed there. I have been placed in front of this microphone today, in this studio today. I've been placed here. 
So I'm going to be faithful to this moment until God changes this moment. And you need to be faithful to the moment that he's placed you in and go back in there and tell a better story. All right, friends, God bless you. I hope this has been useful to you. Please make sure you subscribe, share this with some friends, go check out those links. My name's Jonathan Doyle. This has been the Catholic Teacher Daily Podcast, and you and I are going to talk again tomorrow. I've heard recently a number of discussions on the coarsening of our society, that we've lost respect for others and we no longer have a shared concept of common decency. Our next offering on the sampler is an episode of the podcast series Considering Catholicism. Greg Smith and Corey Lakatos take a long, hard look at what we are losing when we lose respect for common decency. If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, If you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Corey, normally we don't have any kind of script or outline or anything like that. This Mm -hmm. is... I've had people ask us about this. Do you guys have like extensive notes? Have you pre-gamed this? Do you have a script? No, this is really just... Sometimes we come with quotes, like if like we were talking about uh, Pope Benedict. We No, we, we do this completely off the top of our head. However, we do spend all of maybe four or five minutes before we start the recorder, kind of talking a little bit about a flight plan. Sure. Like, you know, we'll kind of start the conversation a little bit with this and then maybe I'll kind of go this direction. You got to go that direction. And we'll kind of try to land here. And then it's just pretty much extemporaneous. What's going to be unique in the next, say, 20 to 25 minutes or so is we have no flight plan. (laughs) So we have not even done that minimal. We we have absolutely dead nothing, zero. So So, keep listening. Don't stop now. So this is going to be, but uh, we were recording this afternoon and I said, you know, um, I've had something in my mind over the last day or two and I feel like I just want to talk about it. And I don't even, it's not even a fully formed thought and I don't really know where I want to go with this, but let's just, since we've got the recorder out, let's talk. So this is going to be an unscripted convert. Well, they're all unscripted, but a completely no even flight plan for it. Here's where I want to go. So I've been thinking a lot lately about the notion of natural law and common morality. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, that just like you think about all the time. Well, here's what I mean by that. There are certain things that are just sort of commonly decent, that are sort of naturally right and wrong, that have largely been recognized throughout cultures and even amongst other religions and everything else. Like Mm -hmm. in general, it's frowned upon to go, if my neighbor has something that I want, like a donkey or a wife or a new car, I can't just walk over there with a you know, my garden shovel and brain my neighbor and take his stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have to be a, a Catholic to not agree with that. You don't need to be a Christian. I mean, you know, uh, 
right? Most Buddhist, Muslims, Hindus, and for that matter, most, you know, pagans, pagans would say, no, you can't just look at your neighbor's new chariot or donkey or, you know, yeah. daughter or whatever and go and brain him with a garden shovel and take his stuff. Or at right? least you shouldn't. Or yeah. you shouldn't, right. You know, and you could, but you shouldn't. And we could go through on a whole lot of list of stuff that I sort of like shouldn't do because it's just kind of considered common morality, sort of transcends religions. So this is the Considering Catholicism podcast, but I'm talking about that stuff that even transcends not only Catholicism, but Christianity itself and becomes Mm -hmm. sort of the common moral law amongst mankind. And the reason I've been thinking about this lately is that I look at a lot of stuff that's going on around us in the culture and in the news and I go, (gasps) so much of this is just awful. And I think that it would, not only do I think it's awful because I'm coming from from a place as a conservative Orthodox Catholic, but I think of my Muslim friends would think it's awful. I think a decent Buddhist thinks it's awful. I think my decent, you know, I got a chance to travel around the world when I was younger and I think decent Hindu people would think this, some of this stuff is all. I think everybody, every decent person on the planet thinks some of the stuff that I see going on in the news and around us today is just horrible and awful. And that got me to thinking about this notion of sort of common or universal morality. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to stop talking because, again, we don't really have a script, but I know we have, you have some thoughts around that too as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I think it comes down to the the fact that in, in Catholic thought and in Christian thought classically, we have um, morality or, um, or beliefs um, that are, are based on revelation, things that God has given us, things that we couldn't have figured out for ourselves. But there's an awful lot of truth that we know simply by reason um, and that we observe the world, we observe human society, we use our rationality and we discern what the natural law is and we can figure out an awful lot about what is right and what is wrong by doing that, um, by plumbing human nature um, and to understand that, um, we talk about C.S. Lewis a lot, um, who was not Catholic, but is a very good, um, sort of, uh, spokesperson for that, that, uh, sort of classic Christian synthesis, um, especially on topics, um, like that of, you know, the basics of Christianity and, uh, and of morality. Um, and in, uh, his works, he, he refers to this as the Tao, um, uh, a term that he borrows from Taoism, um, a classical Chinese philosophy, sort of just the natural law or human nature, the way things work. Um, and of course this isn't perfectly perceived by all people at all times. Like there are, you know, differences in different societies, but sort of the, the mean or the average of morality morality for humanity across times and cultures is remarkably similar. If you actually look at it, um, people like to exaggerate the differences in, in the moral codes of different places. But if you actually line up like the, the texts and, and Lewis and his work and the appendix of one of his books, um, has just, you know, actual quotes from, from various texts from world cultures. And, and you see that there's actually remarkable overlap in all of this. And so you, you have a sort of a, a common heritage of natural law of, of reasonable morality, um, that we can, we can discern whether or not we are Christian. 
Right. I think he talks about this a little bit in Mere Christianity where he, he gives the example of, he says, for example, marriage. Mm-hmm. He said, now throughout cultures and religions, some of the customs around marriage and the boundaries of marriage might be different. So in some customs you can have three wives, cultures, you might have three wives and some, you know, one wife and some cultures, divorce is easier and some it's harder. But he said, there's no culture anywhere that just said anybody should be able to grab any woman they want and just take her. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't work that way and, uh, or whatever, right? There's always some boundaries. And I think in that same passage in mere Christianity, he talks about chastity. He says the Victorian lady, you know, with modesty, her, yeah. yeah, modesty, right. You know, dressed up to the, you know, her, her chin in, you know, eight layers of fabric or whatever. And the Polynesian girl with a, you know, um, who's topless or whatever might be equally chased within there, but nobody thought that there shouldn't be a thing called chastity or, mo- or modesty and mm-hmm. decency. And so he said, there, there are these core beliefs that sort of transcend these things. And, and, I, and I got just to think about this, because as I said a moment ago, that the, the, the sort of awfulness of our society today, right? Uh, you know, it's I often hear people say, especially over the last number of years that, you know, all these other cultures or whatever despise America and despise the West, right? I remember all of this during, uh, you know, the war on terror and this and sure, that. And sure. I'm certainly not defending terrorists or whatever. But one of the things I, you know, I, you and I both worked on uh, in our career and uh, worked on together uh, some books on Islam mm-hmm. and this and that. And we know that there were, there were you know, there are many obviously very decent moral Muslims. Most Muslims around the world are decent moral people. And, but a lot of times they have a critique of America that it's a degenerate, depraved, <laughs> immoral mess of a culture. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, I find it very difficult to argue with them right. on and, that. And their reaction to that may be equally morally depraved if they're a terrorist and are driving well, planes into buildings. Well, not right. But, but, the, but the, the fundamental right. critique of our culture as being degenerate and, you know, immoral and degenerate, you go, well, kind of a point there. Yeah. 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 I I, I find it hard to defend. Uh, And I had conversations with Muslims about that and they go, you come from America and you, you know, look at, look at, and they they catalog all the ways that our culture has become, and I don't need to recite them here, but have become completely depraved and degenerate. And they go, that's the country you want to defend? And I'm like, well, no, I mean, I don't defend any of that stuff. I mean, and this is where I said to you, kind of when I said, hey, let's run the recorder again, because I was watching the other day on YouTube. I don't know. I, I followed some link off Twitter or something. And there was a there was like a panel discussion and they were talking about something kind of about this. And there was a guy in the panel discussion. It was like a conservative Muslim. I don't mean like a, uh, a jihadi type, you know, but just a, just a guy from wherever he was, Turkey or Lebanon or something was a very, you know, fairly conservative kind of person. And then there was on this panel, some young woman from the West was another panelist. And they were talking about marriage and dating and customs and relationships between the genders and all this kind of stuff. And he was talking about how within his culture, there would be a preservation of modesty, decency. If he was interested in a woman, he would inquire. There would be a courtship process. He would talk to their family, uh, to her family, make sure they would want to vet him to make sure that he wasn't, you know, a you know bad person or whatever. And that there was a process 
by which there would be a sort of a decent courtship leading up the marriage versus this other person who was a panelist, you know, and she's like, well, I just swipe left or right on Tinder or whatever and have 47 sexual partners last month or, you know, whatever crazy thing. And I was watching this and going, I think that I like the Muslim guy on this deal, right? I mean, she's some fallen away Catholic and I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with this guy, right. You know, like what he's saying, not everything, but I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? But like, and so it comes back to this thing, you go, well, you know, would you rather live next door? Would you rather live in a village with a morally upright Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus or whatever, or in a village next to a bunch of fallen away, depraved Catholics. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, you know, for your own self, self-preservation and the preservation of your children, I go, I'd rather live in the place that they practiced common morality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and it's not to dismiss, of course, the differences between different religions or the fact that there, there are differences in, in moral codes. And, and obviously we're Catholics and we think that the Catholic understanding of morality is the fullest and most true. And, and so it's not to dismiss the differences between Catholic moral understandings and Muslim or secular or, or whatnot or pagan. But, but it is to, to emphasize the fact that there, there is a common ground. And insofar as we as, as Catholics embrace reason and as people of goodwill of other beliefs embrace reason, we can have that common ground. It can be an immensely important tool for living together in a society in which not everyone is of the same belief, it can also be the beginning of uh, evangelization of, of saying, well, we, we have this in common. Let's build on that and, and let me preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ because we have a, a starting place and, and a, a, some mutual beliefs that we can build on there. Right. I mean, part of it is a, is a differentiation between sort of cultures and sort of existential ways that we live versus doctrines, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, we've talked on the podcast before about all these statistics that show, you know, 70% of Catholics don't know the doctrines of the church or practice them or whatever. 55% of them disagree with the church's sexual morality, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm baptized, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. From and, and then you go, well, okay, that's, that's their belief system and their lifestyles and their practices, which they don't live up to the teachings of the church. They know either don't know or reject or don't live up to the teachings of the church. But there's this whole other thing, which is just how do we be good neighbors with people, mm -hmm. right? And there's culture. And the thing is, is that you can live in a moral culture or a culture that practices a higher level of morality, even though right? Because that's, we're talking about a different thing here. We're talking about uh, moral practices. And so again, I'm just going to, we'll pick this example. Suppose I lived, uh, I moved to Turkey or Lebanon or something, and I lived in some town in Cappadocia, which I've always wanted to go to because it's really cool with the caves and all <laughs> that. Uh, but you go there and you go, okay, I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who have to meet Muslims, but they also, they don't steal my stuff, right? And they're not going to try to, you know, rape my daughter and they're not going to, right? I mean, and so they can be, you know, decent moral neighbors versus I live in some town with a bunch of depraved, you know, fallen away people that are uh, you know, boarding babies and euthanizing old people and, and stealing my stuff and everything else. Mm -hmm. And you can go, well, you know, where would you like to live? Because which culture, and do you live in a culture that broadly supports those kinds of common moral, those moral laws that are, that are universal? Yeah. And, and 
I, th- I think those are, are good examples. Now, of course, it, just because a culture upholds those natural laws based on reason doesn't mean that individuals or large numbers of individuals necessarily live up to them. Like you can have both Christian societies in which people steal and, and do all kinds of um, immoral things. And of course, people are human and are fallen and do that. You can have uh, people who, uh, you know, whether they're they're Muslims or or Buddhists or whatnot, who adhere to a moral code that's based on the natural law, but don't perfectly live right. up okay. to it. So, so right, okay. So, so we can talk about yeah. averages among people, a thousand mm-hmm. people in the village, or we can talk about an individual. Right. So I can say my 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 neighbor. I have two neighbors. On one side is Omar. I'm just hypothetically right, and Omar, uh, you know, is Lebanese and he's a Muslim and he mows his lawn and he doesn't steal my lawn, my mow, my lawn mower. And he, right. Treats his family decently and he pays his taxes and he doesn't, you know, blah, 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 blah. And go down the whole line. And then on the other side, I've got, you know, Patrick, who's some kind of depraved, fallen away Catholic, right? There's two different issues here. One is theological sacramental relationship with God. So Patrick, in some ways, is sacramentally connected because he was baptized in the Catholic Church and confirmed with the Catholic Church and in some sense has a sacramental relationship, but he's living a very immoral life. Omar, on the other side of me, right, does not have a sacramental relationship with Christ, but he's living a moral life. Now, to be perfectly clear, this is not me saying that Omar gets to heaven because he was a good person. Nobody say, take what I'm saying and say that because if you do good deeds, you get to go to heaven. Right. We don't do know bad. which of them or any of them. I, right. I'm, I'm not, that's not what I'm about. What I'm just talking about is, is in the level of society and culture, and when we look at the wheels falling off our culture, we somehow have to find a way back to moral decency. Right. And I, and I think- This isn't a theological uh, yeah. conversation. It's about moral cultural decency. Right. Um, and, and I keep coming back to the fact that all of this is, is knowable by reason. And insofar as we are a reasonable culture and reasonable individuals, we follow the natural law and, and we follow common decency. So- I think the the diagnosis perhaps of of the fact that we are on a large scale turning away from natural law and in on an intellectual basis of not believing it anymore and then on the practical basis of not following it is the crisis in confidence in reason and in the the idea that there's such a thing as human nature and a natural morality. So I want to ground this now kind of bring this to scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay? And give this give this a sort of a theological thing. And again, to anybody, you know, all you listeners out there, this is this conversation is not about theology and it's not about salvation. So this I'm not this is right. zero and it's to not do to say that. that it'd be better if everybody was decent Catholics. I mean, everybody was decent Muslims, because of course we want everybody to be decent Catholics. Like right, that right, would be the right. idea. This this is this is a rare conversation on this podcast that is not about theology, but it's about culture and practice. And uh, what I'm just saying is that we live in a society where the wheels have fallen off the moral wagon and somehow we have to find a way back to being a decent society and a decent culture. And those, those ideas of common decency are not unique Mm -hmm. 
to Catholicism. It's not a unique idea. It's not uniquely Catholic not to take my garden shovel next door and beat my neighbor's brains out to steal his car. You don't have to be a Catholic to not do that. Mm -hmm. But we need to get back to a society where people don't do stuff like that, okay? Mm -hmm. So now what I do want to do is bring at least a little scripture and theologist. And as we said at the beginning, we don't have <laughs> any notes for this or any script. But what I do have is a Bible here on my phone. And uh, I pulled up a passage that I want to read that I think bears on this. Mm -hmm. And then I'll let you comment on it. I'm just going to read it. You know, okay. <clears throat> I read you, you comment. All right. But this is from Romans chapter one, right? Mm -hmm. This is how Paul sort of opens the book of Romans. Yeah. And this is like what, 14, 15 verses. So anybody who wants to follow along at home, Romans chapter one, beginning with verse 18, I'll read and Corey make commentary. Okay. Okay. So Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men or birds or animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and improper conduct. They were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve those who practice them. That's Romans 1, 18 through 32. Yeah, so that's kind of the classic text on natural theology and, and natural law. So what Paul's outlining there is, I mean, it's kind of in response to the supposition, you might say, of, well, most of the world didn't have the kind of revelation that was given to the Jews, so why should we hold them accountable for the wrong things that they've done? And, and Paul says, well, they did know, and there there is a sense an awful lot that you can actually know about God um, from his creation that you can deduce. And we know that from the history of, of philosophy and religion, the, the Greeks being the prime example that's often used, but certainly other cultures as well, um, that, that people deduced an awful lot about, about God and about his attributes and about um, how 
people ought to behave, um, the natural law of, of mankind based on on the God that they they knew through natural theology. And so Paul is saying that they're, they're without excuse, um, that they should have been able to, and they, they did have knowledge of God um, and chose idolatry instead, chose to worship creatures, things like food and power. And, and you know, um, you think of ancient deities associated with fertility or with, uh, with the crops growing or any number of things um, that might be more relevant in, in today's society. And, and so you, if a society and, and the individuals in it give that up and worship other things, they turn away from the natural theology or the natural knowledge of God. They also turn away from the natural law. Paul uses the language of, of God giving them over to it, of uh, essentially not uh, you know, t- preventing the consequences of their actions, of turning away from him and turning away from the natural law. And he has that whole litany of various... Um, sins and evils that people fall into when they turn against God and the natural law. And there's all kinds of stuff in there. There's disobedience to parents. There's all kinds of what you might call spiritual sins of uh, thing, things that you, uh, that are in your heart, but, but certainly a lot of things that you do with your body or that you do to your neighbor. Um, there's, there's a kind of a highlight there of homosexual relations, um, because that's a, uh, a prime example of turning away from how nature works or the natural law of how God designed men and women's bodies to work. And so uh, you have in societies that to one degree or another adhere to natural theology and natural law are going to be more likely to to uh, behave in a way in, in accord with that. So again, we don't agree with everything in Muslim theology, certainly, or in Muslim morality, but they're to to a fairly high degree in tune with natural theology and natural law and so they would they would also see something wrong with homosexuality or with with disrespect to your parents or with murder or theft or any any of these kinds of things um but in a society that turns away from natural theology or natural law um increasingly uh, what paul says that they they not only um tolerate it they they approve it they they think of it as a good um, and I think that's what a lot of us are seeing in contemporary Western society. I don't know if you've ever been to San Francisco. Uh, just once. Okay. Um, and I'm not going in the direction that you think of when I ask. <laughs> well, if you do just, go with, go with flowers in your hair. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, I'm not, uh, when I bring up San Francisco right now, I'm not going down the allusion to Romans one and the practices of people in San Francisco. That's not what I'm going. Where I'm going is the hills. Mm-hmm. Like it's super hilly. Yes. Like insanely yes. hilly. And if you've ever had a car in San Francisco, because I've driven in San Francisco, uh, you know, you got to park the car and you turn the, you turn the wheels into the curb and you don't crank the Pull thing. Your parking right? you break, your parking yeah. right? Because if you don't, once you turn, like let that go, man, it's just gonna go downhill into the bay, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's gonna it's gonna be like in a movie, like you know, in Steve McQueen and Bullet, man, it's gonna be jumping over the <laughs> you know the the intersections and past the riceroni, you know, uh, cable car, and you're going like down into Fisherman's Wharf and into the bay. Um, and I think where Paul is going with this is once you sort of pull the stops out, once the brakes give out 
on a moral society. Once society is sort of turned away from that common morality, you know, I'm not talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about those things that we would call special revelation. And of course, that's ultimately what Paul is preaching yeah. and what Paul wants to get across to people. Is there is this believe. sort of common, this common mm-hmm. natural moral mm-hmm. law that the creator has made known to all his creation and that all of mankind, whether they're Christian or not, whether they live on that st- the the steppes of outer Mongolia or in the jungles of, you know, South America, whatever, all of mankind can look at the creation and, and discern this natural moral law, Paul says. And once you turn away from that, then it's like the car rolling down the street of San Francisco into the bay because there's no brakes. Nothing's going to stop it. It's out of control. And that's why he has that long list there of all these horrible, 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 horrible things that, that, you know, the, the, you know, the literally it just, you know, goes downhill from there and everything gets horrible and depraved. And it strikes me that we've hit that inflection point, at least in the West. And I think that's where, you know, people in other countries and so now they make this critique. And of course we're supposed to say, well, no, you know, I mean, Hey, it's freedom, America. It's America. And I go, well, hold on. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm with you. Cause I look around every day and I go, man. And part of me thinks, well, I'm just an old guy, you know? So maybe, you know, I'm just too old and whatever, but I don't think that has nothing to do with it. I just look around and I go, we have crossed some inflection point where, you know, the brakes have gone out and we're rolling down the hill into the, you know, to fisherman's wharf and into the bay because there is no common moral law or moral decency anymore. And, uh, and, and we're reaching this point of total depravity. Uh, and I don't mean that in the theological sense of Calvinism, but mm-hmm. in this, in the practical sense of how society just comes, I mean, this is Weimar Republic stuff, you know? In yeah. The and, and, and it's important not to overstate the case. I mean, this doesn't mean that like everybody you walk past on the street would brain you and take your wallet if they had a chance. Like, like there, there are natural law does just live in people's hearts if they're using their reason at all. But we're talking about, um, sort of, a a, a general or a corporate, um, uh, sort of withering away of that, of that sense of natural law and that obedience to it, which has effects on every individual, but also the the corporate effects on the whole society. Right. I mean, obviously we're not saying that everybody is as bad as they can be, but what we're saying is in this sense, the, the, the sort of cultural um, norms have been so eroded that now, you know, there's, almost, there's no breaks on the thing. And so that, that brings it back to us as those who are, uh, obedient to the natural law, whether we be Christians or not. And it puts it particularly on those of us who are Christians, mm-hmm. who, who not only have the natural revelation that Paul talks about in Romans 1, but also have the special revelation of Jesus Christ and the sacramental, you know, present in the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have to be salt and light in a society. You know, that, that, that uh, uh, analogy of Jesus is used all the time, salt and light, but we don't think about what that actually means. You know, salt, you put the salt, uh, the Roman in the ancient world, you put, you packed meat with salt so that it wouldn't rot, rot, you know, and there has to be light that there's darkness and rot and we have to be um, the salt and light in this society. Uh, but we also have to figure out how to live in it, you know? So I've reached a point where, you know, my kids are, are, are grown, but you, you have small, small children at home, mm-hmm. Corey. So now you have to figure out how do I raise these children in this society that is, you know, pick your 
pick your example, you know, whether this is ancient Corinth or it's ancient Babylon or it's Sodom and Gomorrah or whatever it is that we're living through, but it's, it's, it's pretty, you know, bad. And you have to figure out how you raise moral kids in an immoral culture. And, and I think it's, it's tough. Mm -hmm. It's tough for us to all figure this out. So, and I think that where we can make common cause, and I think that's where we want to kind of land land this thing, because it's kind of where I started it. What I've been thinking about lately is wherever I can find an ally, and I'm not talking about theologically, I'm not talking about doctrinally, I'm not talking about sacramentally, but wherever I can find an ally, neighbors who will band together to build decent neighborhoods where our children are safe and we don't have moral degeneracy, then I think we need to build those, those allies. And I do think that's one of the things that Pope Francis has, has tried to do is to mm-hmm. figure out where, where can we reach across and, and, and make elite alliances with those who, who are of other faiths or of no faith to at least find those things that we have in common. Uh, for common moral decency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. And that's part of the Christian's call to live in the world. Um, and it's in no way does it replace uh, the the call for the Christian to evangelize and to, to try to um, bring others to the faith, to revelation. Um, but oftentimes I think it's a, it's a precursor of it or, or a, a paves the way for it because it's very hard to embrace the Christian faith if you have not before that embraced natural law. Um, There's, there's a framework there that makes it a lot easier because God is reasonable and he created the, the creation, he created human nature. Um, and so we would expect to see that any reasonable, reasonable person, um, even if they don't have revelation, would come to similar conclusions about the way the world works and about morality. Um, and so if, if somebody is convinced of that, then they've come a good way along the path to being convinced of the God of Jesus Christ. Well, I'd also say another thing too, that, you know, to, to, to come into the gospel and where a Christian witness comes into this, it's, it's hard for us. None of us are perfect. That's why as a Catholic, you know, we have the sacrament of confession and reconciliation and absolution. So none of us are going to live perfect lives, Mm -hmm. right? And Catholic societies have not been perfect societies. Absolutely. So that, but that being stipulated, it's very difficult for us to share Christ with the world and do evangelization when we ourselves, if we ourselves don't practice at least some common Mm -hmm. decency and practice the common decency that should be avail- available to and, and evident, as Paul says, to all mankind. So how much our witness gets undermined? You know, we, you and I were talking this morning in a different context about evangelization in the church and what are the, str- what the struggles that we have to evangelize. And I think, you know, frankly, one of them is when you look at a church in America where the majority of Catholics don't agree with, baptized and confirmed Catholics, don't agree with their church's moral teaching and don't practice it. it. Yeah. Uh, it's very difficult. I mean, well, it's very difficult to do evangelize. It's not hard to understand why we aren't effective at it mm-hmm. because we can go out and say, well, the church teaches X, Y, Z. And they can say, look, I know 10 Catholics and some of, seven of them don't practice that or agree with it. So what is our witness? Mm-hmm. And so it's not that we are saved by moral actions. Okay. But, but immoral actions undermine 
when we live gro- grossly immoral lives. We're not going to live perfect lives. We're going to sin. We're going to go to confession and reconciliation. But when we sort of live grossly un- immoral lives, not even practicing the you know the common decency that we're talking about, it it really does undermine you know our witness. Oh yeah, absolutely. In, in the world, and so we have to start building decent families and decent communities and we have to build alliances with others to build decent communities. I mean, when I look at our schools and, you know, of course our Catholic schools, but I even just look at our public schools and I look at our neighborhoods and I go, how do we reach across the street to neighbors who may or may not share our Catholic faith, but work together to build decent neighborhoods that are safe and, and morally credible and, and where, uh, you know, we have to find ways to do that. Mm -hmm. So. Well, there we go. It's a small challenge, but an important challenge. So, all right. Well, thanks, Corey. Yep. Thanks you, Greg. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its Saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com and email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com Last week, we marked the beginning of Lent on Ash Wednesday. Before we get too far into the season, let's explore what Lent is all about. From 3-Minute Theology, this is Joan Watson. Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of the season of Lent in the church. Lent lasts for 40 days. Now, 40 is an important biblical number. We see that the Israelites wandered throughout the desert in the Old Testament for 40 years. Lent, lasting 40 days, comes from the time in Christ's life when he sets time aside and goes out to the desert to fast and pray for 40 days. Now, when did he do this? He did this before his public ministry. So he's baptized in the River Jordan by John, and then he goes out into the desert to to spend that time in prayer with his father before going out to accomplish his father's will. Now, if Jesus Christ himself did this, don't you think it's important for us to do it as well? To set time aside, to grow closer to our father in prayer and fasting? Oh, it, it became common a while back to talk about not giving something up for Lent, but doing something for Lent. And while I see the advantages of this, I respond with, yes, both and. We need to do additional things during Lent, but we shouldn't neglect giving something up. There's an importance to fasting. Now, the three hallmarks of the Lenten season, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, come to us from Matthew's Gospel, and it's the Gospel we read on Ash Wednesday. In Matthew 6, Christ refers to these three practices, and it's interesting. He doesn't say, if you give alms, and he doesn't say, hmm, praying's a good thing to do, but instead he says, when you pray, when you fast, and when you give alms. They're not really options but they're important parts of this Lenten season. And so I encourage you to look at these three areas and pick at least one thing to do during Lent that falls under these three things. Do something to increase your prayer life. Fast from something and give alms in some way, whether that's money, time, or talent, do something to bless those in need. Now, I think there are two traps in Lent. There's the trap of doing something or choosing to give up something that's so hard, you do it for a few days and then you wear out and you give up. That's not the point of Lent. 
The other trap is to pick something so easy that you barely even notice you're doing it. That's not the point either. You know, a sacrifice isn't a sacrifice if it's not hard. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look more closely at things like fasting and almsgiving. What does that mean? But remember, as you set aside time to think about what you're going to do for Lent, remember the whole point is to grow closer to Christ, to set time aside in our busy schedules. We can't go out to the desert for 40 days, but to set time aside and think, how can I grow closer to my heavenly father so that I'm better equipped to go out and do his will? And this is a little theology in three minutes. And that's all the time we have for Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler for today. You can find this show in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org, along with links and directions to more of the programs we've shared. I'm Kent Blanford, and until next time, may God bless and have a wonderful Lenten season.